minimalists. <laughs> All right, now before we dive into our surprise questions today, before we discuss uh, a little bit more about Erwin's new book, The Way of the Warrior, we have a little segment here called More About Less, where we, we read a little bit of something and, and it's a jump off point. I want to read from the last chapter of your previous book, Erwin, uh, The Last Arrow. Uh, you have a chapter in there called Battle Ready. And, which is now the name of a podcast that you do with with your son, where you, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know how you best describe it, other than you you might say that you two disagree about stuff sometimes, and uh, it almost seems to me like he has uh, the typical insecurities of, of your average thirty year old, and you try to help him through those on a podcast. <laughs> um, That'd be about right. Yeah. <laughs> and. Um, now, the reason you started, well, you, the, that you had this chapter um, and, and started this podcast uh, is because you were at a difficult time in your life, is, uh, that's fair to say. Well, about two and a half years ago, uh, I found out that I had cancer, yeah. but it was really about a 10-year process. I was uninsurable for about a decade. Mm. I what do you mean? I couldn't get, uh, well, I, I, I ran multiple companies at one time, and so my business partner wanted me to have a key man policy right. so that if I died, the companies wouldn't go under and they could you know, uh, benefit from my death. Mm -hmm. and, and I couldn't qualify for life insurance. And so I kept trying to go back, take more tests, I couldn't find anything wrong with me, but the, I couldn't pass the tests. Hmm. And then uh, you know, seven or so years later, I was trying to get a key man policy for Mosaic so that uh, if I died, the church could benefit from my death. And I still couldn't get life insurance. Hmm. And so I called his doctor and they finally sent me through a whole other series of tests. And for some reason, the cancer I had was they just couldn't find it. And then by the time they found it, it was already at stage four and stage five. And it spread to you know my bladder, my lymph nodes, my prostate. And, mm. and, uh, and so it was, you know, um, uh, high, um, the surgeon kept saying high magnitude of cancer, mm. high volume cancer. Mm -hmm. and, and so I had a six and a half hour surgery. And I just finished writing the last arrow before they told me I had cancer. Mm -hmm. And I was editing the manuscript. And the line I read the night I found that I had cancer was, um, I think it's like page 104 or something like that in the last arrow. Um, I need to tell you before you hear it from someone else that I'm, that I'm dying. Mm -hmm. And I wrote that a year before. But, but I, it was really leading up to the next line that says, but so are you. Mm -hmm. And I, one of the, I don't know, maybe a little bit morbid, but I think interesting aspects of my life is that I've lived almost all my life as if I were going to die that day. And it's just been a part of my own personal uh, journey. I used to work um, intensely with drug cartels and, and I mean- I'd, in I, Dallas? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would walk into rooms with cocaine stacked to ceilings, using machine guns everywhere. I'd walk into rooms where no one walks out and entire uh, projects that were only one family lived in them and they were surrounded and uh, protected by armed guards. And mm -hmm. so I lived in that world in my 20s and I didn't know any day whether it would be my last day. And there used to be people who would make bets on which day I would be killed. Oh wow! And you know, and so I, I've lived that way. And when uh, do you remember when nine eleven? Oh no, so uh, what is it? Y two K happened, mm -hmm. and they said all the planes were going to crash and all computer systems. Right. So on the thirtieth, I took my family and we flew from L A to Philadelphia. On the thirty first, we flew from Philadelphia to Houston, and on the first, we're in the first planes flying out of Houston to L A because I saw so many people panicked and living in fear. And ironically, all these Christians who said they had faith were paralyzed by fear. Mm. 
And I told my wife, look, if they're right, we die and we die together as a family. So we all went together. (laughs) (laughs) But but I'm pretty sure they're wrong and they're paralyzed by fear. Mm. And and so after 9-11 happened, uh, that's when I became a really popular speaker Mm. because so many speakers canceled because they were so afraid to fly. Mm. And I had a reputation that I would go anywhere uh, at any level of risk. So I started getting phone calls every week going, this speaker's canceled, this speaker's canceled. And I started flying all over the world to the point where my wife became bitter. Mm. And telling, I want to call that person's wife and tell my, my husband's being jeopardized because your husband's a coward. Oh, wow. And I said, look, how do, you, how do you deal with this when you have this whole movement that's built on faith and everybody's paralyzed by fear? Mm. So a huge part of my, so when I faced cancer, it didn't really change my posture in life. People kept asking me, how did cancer change you? And I, I had to be honest. It did not change me. Hmm. It reinforced that the things I actually believed were valid to who I was as a person. And you can bring my my son, my daughter, my wife in here, and they'll tell you that through the whole process, I never never felt fear. Hmm. And And I came to the conclusion, most people are afraid to die because they've never lived. It's actually the fear of life that paralyzes us. So we come to the end of our life and we feel like we never did what we were supposed to do. See, I... I turned 61 this week. I've done everything I want to do. I just have to keep creating new lists. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I've walked the streets of Damascus, Syria, where they had the highest concentration of assassins in the world and had beautiful conversations with people and traveled into Pakistan where on the plane, I was warned over the intercom that if I proselytized my faith, it was punishable by death. Mm. <laughs> and and wow. I'm the only person basically on the plane and uh, that speaks in English and only, and, and they're literally saying over the intercom. Mm. You know, going into the killing fields of Cambodia while the world, the, the nation was still in massive turmoil. And, and, I, and I, I feel like uh, most of us are afraid of death because there is no possibility in our minds of life after death. Mm. if we've never had life before death. Mm. And, and that, to me, is why I write, is that, all right, let's just say I'm wrong. There's no life after death. Then you really need to take this seriously because you better make sure you have life before death. Mm. You, you talk about competition in, in the book and how you, um, we often think of, of competition as a bad thing or, and or a good thing, depending on our perspective. <laughs> But you had a, a rather stoic surgeon uh, with respect to your cancer. And, I did. And, he, and, and you questioned him about his competitiveness afterwards. Yeah, Dr. Khalili. He's actually the surgeon who invented the um, robot called Da Vinci. Oh, wow. That does the, the surgery for cancer. Wow. And, uh, and I had this young guy come up and ask me, ask me if uh, competition was wrong and if it was wrong to be competitive. And I said, absolutely not. I... I, I I want a surgeon who's competitive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, know, and, you want a surgeon that hates to lose. Yeah. yeah. And so I want, you want him to be the right kind of competitive. You, you don't care whether or not he's competing against other surgeons. You want him to be competitive against that cancer. Absolutely. Yeah. And so after the surgeon uh, finished his work, after Dr. Khalili um, uh, had um, finished a really excellent um, work on me, I asked him, I said, Dr. Khalili, I have a theory. I, th- I have a theory that you are competitive, but he's stoic, shows no emotion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he looked at me and then his face broke for the first time in all the months I'd known him. He goes, I am so competitive. <laughs> he goes, I hate to lose. Mm. He goes, if I lose a patient, mm. I can't sleep. Mm. And, and, and I, I think it's really important. Like I, uh, I'm competitive, but not against other people. 
And I, I think if you're competitive against other people, you've limited yourself. Because what happens when you become the best in the world? If you're competitive against other people, now you lose your motivation. Yeah. yeah. Right? You, you, you have to be competitive against ideals. Mm. You know? And so I, I know like, I can be competitive against Hemingway. Someone mentioned Hemingway earlier. And, uh, <laughs> and I can be competitive against uh, Da Vinci. And that means that I've never achieved their standard. Mm-hmm. Right. But the moment you've actually achieved the level of greatness, you have to have something else more intrinsic that motivates you. It's, yeah. the, it's like the love for beauty. That's interesting too, because if you're competitive against other people, yeah, if you beat everyone, then you've got nothing left. But also, if you are aspiring to beat Da Vinci, I mean, that may stilt your growth there because you know you can never beat Da Vinci. So it's kind See, of on. I, I I'm, don't know. I'm, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying I'm not saying you personally. No, no, I, I'm just teasing. No, I think the problem is that you become win lose. Yes. The moment yeah. you measure against yourself yes. against other people, you need them to lose for you to win. Yeah, absolutely. And and so the danger there is that you actually only measure yourself against people who perhaps in that area are not as talented as you. Mm-hmm. So you create a false sense of your own greatness. Yeah. Yeah. Let's so talk true. a little bit about culture, uh, because I, I think obviously you, your uh, mosaic has a particular culture, but it's also you, you work hard to embed yourself in uh, in the the culture writ large. I, in fact, I have a, a quote here from you. I purposely align myself. I think it's from the LA Times. I purposely align myself with the person who would never go to church, and I would rather be relevant to them than the person who is already committed to going mm. to church. Absolutely. So can we talk a little bit about that? Why is that? Uh, well, different theories out there. <laughs> my, my, my kids and my wife would say, I don't really like Christians. <laughs> and, uh, I think that's a little bit unfair, although um, there is empirical evidence that might <laughs> validate that. I, I think I, um, one, I'm not drawn to people who are dogmatic. Mm. And, uh, it, but I don't feel need to change anyone's mind. So if a person's dogmatic and they believe in God, I feel no need to have an influence in their life. And a person's dogmatic and doesn't believe in God, I feel no need to have influence in their life. I like people who um, are open-minded, have an open spirit, and are trying to make sense of the universe around them, life around them. And, and that's the person I know how to have a conversation with. Yeah. And so it's not really about uh, whether, whether a person agrees with me or not, or believes in God or doesn't, or believes in Jesus or doesn't. I think I'm just interested in people who are curious. Mm. And Mosaic draws people who are curious, who are interested in the unknown, who are, who are comfortable in journeying through mystery, and who understand that life is a lot more complicated than simple answers. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not very linear, and I don't know if that's obvious or not, but uh, and for years and years and years I tried to be linear. And I, I'm, my wife has what she would say is really strong belief and the problem is when you have strong belief, you're certain you're right even when you're wrong. Mm. Like for, we've been married 36 years, and I cannot tell you how many times over 36 years we're driving, and I'll go somewhere she's never been, and she'll go, it's left. And I'll go, no, honey, it's right. She goes, it's left. And if I don't turn left, it damages our marriage, mm. right? <laughs> so I, I've just, over the years, I take the wrong turn, and I just keep driving until she'll get quiet, Oh, there's something pithy there, Shia. Yeah. The, the, sometimes the wrong turn is the right turn. Yeah, until <laughs> yeah. she'll say, uh, you probably should turn around. And I'll say, why? Uh, and she goes, because it's, it's, this isn't the way. <laughs> and I've asked her, how can you be so certain when you're wrong? Mm. 
And the, the reason is because the way it feels when you're wrong is it feels that you're right. Mm. It feels just like when you're right. Yeah. And so we're like diametrical opposites. She feels right when she's wrong. I feel wrong when I'm right. Mm. Even if I know how to get someplace, if everyone says to me it's the other way, I start wondering, maybe I misremembered, maybe I don't know. Yeah. I think that probably is also true in my faith journey. Like I, you know, I feel like I'm a person, and I'm open about it. I'm shocked. I believe. Yeah, you know? <laughs> well, I, I hear this term uh, uh, thrown out uh, about you, and I think in a positive way, iconoclast, which basically just means someone who you know questions structures or belief systems, or and and I. I I expect you wear that as a badge of honor because what you're saying is like, I, I don't always know if I'm right, so I'm gonna keep questioning. Yeah. I mean, you have to realize I began with believing in a universe that had an infinite number of dimensions mm-hmm. of like uh, parallel realities. And then I come to faith in Jesus, which is a, at least the, the Western version is an incredibly linear view. Mm. You know, so like um, talking about God's like perfect will, like it's this tightrope. And if you fall off the tightrope, you've just walked out of God's will. And now like you're just falling aimlessly into plan B or C or D. I'm going, this is such a limited view of reality where people saying, well, if God's in the future, he has to, it's all fixed, it's all determined. I said, atheism and Calvinism are the same belief system Mm. and Islam and Buddhism. They all lead to the exact same path that says it's in the end all fate. And I'm the opposite of that. See, I'm like, oh, if, okay, if there's a God and he's eternal and infinite and all present, then he could exist in every possible future. Mm. So there could be an infinite number of futures and God's in all of them. Mm. And every time you make a choice, there are futures that are eliminated and futures that are created, but that's not complicated for God because he's in all of them. Mm. And I, I, I just look at it and go, I think we haven't even begun to ask all the right questions. Mm. It's not that our answers are so much wrong, it's that our answers are so small and insignificant in the contrast of what we'll begin to ask later. And that for me is exciting. And I think that's, to me, that's what Mosaic's about. If you want some place where everything is already set in space and there's fill in the blank and you, everybody knows all the answers. And, and you know, when I could travel to Christian churches or conferences and they'll say, when you, know, when you speak truth, everyone's gonna respond. I go, you mean when I say what everyone believes, they'll all cheer? <laughs> they, go, they go, yes, and I said, that doesn't happen with me. Right. Like people aren't, I just spoke at a pretty significant place and afterwards this man came up to me and he said, I don't even know if I believe anything you said, <laughs> but I wanna buy your book and read it. And I thought, it's so funny, here I am in this Christian space, I completely believe in Jesus, but he's not sure if anything I've said is actually accurate. And I think a lot of it is because we're still unwrapping superstition. You know, I just finished a graphic novel and been writing it with a friend who writes uh, like a lot of this Batman, Superman, X Men, and things like that. And and we were working back and forth, and he took out all the myth and all um, the magic. And I think he did it because he thought that's what you know we should do. And I went back and started rewriting it. I said, I'm a Texas. I said, Hey. I'm putting the myth and magic back in because that's how I see reality. Mm. It's not because I think the story should have it. It's, uh, I, 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 you know, I mean, I take one of the characters and um, they ask him, is this, which, which legend is true? And I said, it doesn't matter where a legend comes from, it matters where it's taking you. Mm. And, and I think sometimes we're, we're trying so hard to figure out what's actually true rather than what actually uh, makes us healthy. I think that um, when it comes to to reality, um, 
I look at what you've what you've created at, at Mosaic, and I'm, I'm looking over some quotes here. Um, yeah, I s- will often see a billboards up here on <laughs> on uh, uh, what is it, La Brea, and and they're like, "You belong here," or um, uh, "Everyone's welcome," or, or yeah. and can we talk a little bit about the reality of uh, of Mosaic because it is it seems to be a rather diverse community of people i want to talk a bit about community and i I, by the way um i always worked outside like i'm a business person i worked in the fashion industry in the film industry i worked as a future i've worked as a futurist for 40 years and um and i've been a writer for 20 years and my income has always been dominantly from the outside and uh, um, I think that when the church started paying me, they paid me like $17,000 a year, All right, you know? So <laughs> I've never made my living from being a pastor. I want to be really clear about that. And you've even shunned that, that term. Like I remember, uh, yes. I forget which book it was in, either this or the last era, you talk about, yeah, I uh, even the term pastor, like I, I prefer to be called a speaker or, or just because mm. you don't Irwin all- is great. <laughs> <laughs> That's the preferred title. Yeah. And, but for seven or eight years when I was running multiple companies, I, st- I never left Mosaic because Mosaic was my community. And I find that I would not have become a healthier person without community. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, and I, I look at my own life and I think, without people, I would have not found the level of health I have. Mm-hmm. Without people, I wouldn't have worked through a lot of the destructive patterns I had in my life. Uh, community has helped me find a deeper sense of wholeness and meaning in my life. And I want to give that as a gift to other people. And I, I think the community mosaic is really, really important. And so years ago, we just started saying to people, you don't have to believe to belong. Mm-hmm. You don't have to agree with us to be with us. And we just created this internal narrative mm-hmm. and saying, look, you know, we, the last time we did a survey, we had over a thousand adults who said they were atheists, who are part of our community. and. And a lot Can you imagine of imagine t- this, Ryan, a, a thousand atheists going to church on a Sunday, like it. it no, I it, mean, like I think about because I'm, you know, the Jehovah's Witness religion. Uh-huh. Like, you know, atheists can go to the church or Kingdom Hall is what they call it. Uh, you could be gay and go to the Kingdom Hall, but you will not be associated with. You will not be able. You will not be allowed to speak. If you raise your hand, there's question and answer in some of their meetings. You will not uh, be called on. And yeah, it was, it's, uh, I could not imagine it. <laughs> and you have a, a pretty large LGBT community there at, at Mosaic as well. How could you not? We're on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard <laughs> <laughs> and La Brea. And, and what I think is interesting is people always want us to choose or to make statements that are actually more political than they are human. And I, I, and I have avoided that for you know 40 years. I, I just do not use the platform politically in any direction. Mm. And, and I said, look, if you have another agenda, um, it's okay for you to have that agenda, but I'm not gonna carry that agenda on the platform of Mosaic, because we're actually here to speak hope into people's lives and to try to help people find meaning. And, and um, I'm really for humanity. Like, I'm just a huge fan of the human species. Man, I wish every <laughs> leader of a church would be an Irwin. Because <laughs> yeah, that's the most important part of religion, I think, is it is community. I mean, you hit yeah. the nail on that. Can we talk a little bit about grace? And, and what grace means to you? Yeah, it's it's so odd because I almost never use the word, yeah. and I, I think probably probably because it's um, it's used so much inside of Christianity mm-hmm. that I, I tend to only use language on Sunday that I would use on Monday, mm-hmm. and 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 so I 
it's not that I don't believe in grace. It's just I would talk about grace maybe in other ways, mm. you, you know. And um, and it, maybe it's because it's a concept that's just too big for my mind. What is stay humble? No, 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 no. I know what you're saying. Though. You know, yeah. I just know I've been married 36 years, and our marriage wouldn't have survived if my wife didn't choose to see me through the best lens. Mm. And, and maybe grace is God's way of seeing us through the lens of who he created us to become. And I, I think humans have this negative tendency to want to define people by their worst moments. Yeah. Yeah. And um, when I became a person of faith, and I, I didn't even, you know, Christians talk a lot about heaven. I never thought twice about heaven. Mm. And then they try to scare you to believe in God by telling you about hell. I never worried one second about hell. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I uh, was desperately um, terrified that my life was meaningless mm. and that, uh, I, that existence was arbitrary. And, um, and I felt this overwhelming hollowness, wondering if um, I was just a speck of dust. Mm. and a backdrop of an accidental universe and, mm. and the possibility. So I was really, I went through, I mean, I was a philosophy student in college, you know, I went and I, I read every mythology book in the library by the time I was 12 years old. I mean, I was searching for meaning and trying to make sense of those are any reality, any mythology. And when I heard about Jesus and I thought, okay, of all the stories, this is the only one where we're not having to work our way to God. This is the only one where God actually did something to get to us. So this is what flipped me, was like, if, there were, if I'm the more powerful in a relationship, I think it's my responsibility to forgive. Mm. It's my responsibility to, to um, work toward reconciliation. And, and the way religion is laid out is, laid out is like, you have to do all these things to get God's attention. Mm. You have to do all this stuff to get God's forgiveness. You gotta do all this stuff to get God's love. Whatever that is, that's not grace. Yeah, it, it, you know. And uh, but when I read this and I go, okay, God is the one who has the capacity to fix the problem, whether we created it or not, right? So, and He comes into human history on our behalf, and and uh, and the ultimate narrative of the universe is love, and the ultimate expression of love is sacrifice. Mm. And so I go, this is like the exclamation point of love, is the cross, and that's what compelled me thought makes sense that God is pursuing me. And I always tell people, I said, look, it's insanity to run from God and search for love. And mm -hmm. uh, it, it, to me, faith is about stopping and letting love catch up with you. And, and you know, and so I, I see grace not as some blind um, blanket that says, um, it's unimportant to me what you do. I, think, I see grace as God going, um, I know why I created you. And every mistake you make along the way, I'm going to pull you to your highest self. Mm. And I'm going to see you for who I created you to be, not for who you've been. I like that. And it, well, a word you mentioned in your book, too, I want to talk about is energy. Because you talk about how, you know, when someone comes up to you, they're like, you have really good energy and how you're kind of uh, turned off a little bit by it. And I totally understand with the explanation because especially like you said, living in LA in your book, you the know, energy capital. Of the yeah. World. The energy capital of the world. So talk to me because I, I don't know what else, what other word to use, but I also feel the same way that you feel about energy. Anytime I say, uh, man, you have really good energy or man, this city has really good energy. I will 
preface it with, I know this is going to sound really hippie and like new agey, but I always have to preface it. So yeah, I guess talk a little bit about that word. Well, first of all, I want to just slight adjustment. Okay, okay. All right, because when you read, you're not reading what a person writes, you're reading what you perceive the person writes. That is, I totally agree with that, yeah. Because I actually said I like the word energy. Oh, okay. But I said my wife hates the word energy. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was listening to the book at one and a half speed, so okay, that might okay. have been why I misunderstood. No, no, but I, I build a huge argument for why people hate the word energy. Yeah, But okay. um, I, I started using the word energy like 30 years ago, and my wife hated it. She goes, okay. I hate that you use that word. You sound so new age or whatever. And yeah. and uh, and I, 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 uh, I actually like that the world is affirming words I used 30 years ago. Because <laughs> now we have energy drinks and we have energy bars mm-hmm. and we understand that humans are inherently nothing but energy. Mm-hmm. And, and you acknowledge yeah. in the book too that, that um, some people can use it in a sort of trite or empty way. That's where the problem is, yeah. is that um, one reason I think we move toward energy in LA is our high spirituality without really wanting um, any kind of implication to a relationship to a God who thinks. Mm. Because if, if, in a sense, God is just an energy, he doesn't think. Ah, uh, I see. And, but if God is more than an energy, he thinks, and so he might actually have opinions or thoughts or values. He might not be okay with injustice. Mm. He might not be okay with poverty. He might not be okay with greed. Mm. And, and so the moment God takes on a higher personality, he might have an opinion. And we'd rather have an opinionless God that we can just access like a genie. Mm-hmm. And, but it doesn't negate the fact that humans are energetic. Right. Right. And in fact, yesterday, uh, there was actually this morning, I was watching um, Hard Knocks with John Gruden and the, and the Raiders. Oh. And he starts talking about Antonio Brown going, I just love his energy. He just brings so much energy. He'll be the most energetic player, you know. But his energy is going a lot of directions, right? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> right. It's a little bit crazy, you know. And I think the key is harnessing your energy. Mm-hmm. And, and so part of what I write in the book is that you can't escape the fact that you are an, uh, an energy consumer and an energy conduit. Mm. And you have to figure out how much energy you have. There's this assessment that we use that we can actually see how much energy a person uh, naturally um, uses. And me and my daughter have this uh, almost off the scale amount of energy. Mm. But most of our staff has a much lower amount of energy they can expend every day, so they get tired much faster. Mm. And, and ironically, I know this sounds like magic, uh, I get stopped around the world constantly through security. And when I went through London and the machine goes off again, and I just, I just said to the guy, look, this happens to me every single time. And, and he said, well, the machine's set on a certain frequency, and if you admit more energy than that, and there was a time in my life where I couldn't even wear watches because my body was emitting so much energy, the watches would stop. Mm. Even a few times where I touched computers and they stopped. Mm. And, and I found that there was this phenomenon that actually is real. Right. This, this isn't him making this up. There, no. there are a list of people around the world who can't wear watches. I mean, it's a very small subset of the population. Yeah. Right. But for whatever reason, uh, it's not like you couldn't wear a watch. It just would stop functioning after well, a few I days, they would right? Break. Yeah. And so I could take them in, in to get repaired. They kept saying, there's something wrong with this watch. And then I finally realized, oh, it's me. Yeah. And, and so that made me really interested in energy. But also know that when you're doing something out of obligation, it costs you energy. Mm-hmm. When you're doing something out of intention, it gives you energy. Yeah. And so energy is relative. Right. To Absolutely. your own life. Yeah. And, uh, and in some sense, even when you're focusing on, on being minimal, mm-hmm. 
what you don't want to do is make is make a person minimal in terms of their energy absolutely right yeah it's, it's not about uh, removing the things that add value from your life in fact it's the opposite I, earlier i mentioned the average household has three hundred thousand items in it ryan aren't saying we're not saying we well, need to become monks or ascetics get rid of all your stuff no we're saying like you know what maybe question the things that you bring into your life the things that you hold on to yeah. get rid of the excess so the things you own actually do bring you joy value peace whatever it may be they augment your life instead of instead of getting in the way um i I love what you say in your book about energy though where you say when you're doing something like ask yourself is it energizing you because the things that we love to do those are the things that energize us and the things we don't like to do that's what kind of takes our energy away and it really helped me kind of reframe the decisions i make like am i making decisions that energize me or am i draining that energy and sometimes you do have to do some taking out the garbage is what you brought up in your book (laughs) sometimes you got to take out the trash and that can drain a little bit of energy um but yeah we certainly um well i certainly can look at my decision process a little bit differently now from kind of looking at that example you gave about energy you have to make sure that you're not in a relationship that you're just draining all the energy from other people right yes Yes. and you you want to ask yourself i you know i used to use this phrase called 51 percent said look maybe you're not going to be a huge contributor 90% 90% where you're giving and 10% where you're taking. Mm-hmm. But could you at least go 51% where you consume 49, you give 51 so that every relationship and every environment in your life, you've left more than you've taken. Mm. And, and so I, years ago in this book called Uprising, it just kind of laid out this framework. It said, just become 51%. That way in every relationship in your life, you know you gave more than you took. Yeah. In every job, you, you gave more than you took. If you, if you take a paycheck and you do less work than that paycheck deserves, You've, you've reversed that, that ratio. I, I, w- I never want to do a job where I get paid to do um, even exactly what I did. I want to give more to that job mm. than I'm paid. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I teach a writing class, and um, I, I try to give people four times the value that they pay for it. So like, if it costs $600, then I, you know, I want them to get you know, $2,400 worth of value from the class. And, and, and that's my intention going into it. I want to make sure that, that I'm contributing more than, than I'm getting from that. Let's, let's talk a little bit about contribution or, or serving. Uh, I think there's a, a moment in the book where you talk about how samurai and deacon essentially mean the same thing. It's, it's the same word, servant. <laughs> which I love. I used to go to Japan and I love Japanese culture. It was a hugely influential in a lot of the aesthetic that I created at Mosaic. Yeah. And I took uh, basically the um, aesthetic of Da Vinci and the aesthetic of samurai culture and blended them together. And that's how I formed a lot of my internal aesthetic for Mosaic and so much of what I did. It's a beautiful building. And, and we're going to talk more about the building in, in a little bit because I know you, you have a campaign right now to actually buy the building. And so, so we'll talk a little bit about that, see if we can get some folks to, to help out with it. But um, the, the, the thing that, that stands out to me every time I walk by, I, it is truly a gorgeous building. We're in a city that doesn't have a bunch of gorgeous architecture. It's a, it is a strip mall city quite a bit, right? Mm-hmm. Very, very much. It, it's, and it's, it's a hodgepodge. It's strangely put together. It's like downtown is over there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't know like if you're new to LA and let's say you know you go up to a really high spot you go to uh, you know the Getty and you're looking at the view it's hard to tell what downtown is because there's, <laughs> there's it's know, is, is that Century City or is that yeah it, right it, it, so you, yeah it, it is confusing and so um in terms of aesthetic, I, I mean, you do a phenomenal job with, uh, I mean, it just, it, it looks great. Um, I think what you present to the world, 
Um, aesthetics are are an important aspect. Now, I think sometimes we we lose it when we just focus only on aesthetics, and then it becomes a a facade or a veneer to something that is crumbling inside. So, so I think the the interior needs to be strong, but then how we put our best foot forward is is via the aesthetics. Is is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, I was thinking this morning even uh, that we live in a uh, in a I think in a structure right now, a mental structure where all of our cities are going to look like they're designed by public storage. Mm. Wow. And because a part of the challenge is when you even look, think about a minimal life is Paris isn't minimal. Right. Paris is an eruption of beauty. Mm-hmm. And, and yet it's not gaudy. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, there's, there's an intelligence behind the architecture and the design of the city. And I'm, I'm a little nervous that we're only going to get IKEA cities going forward. Mm. And that we're no longer in an era where a Paris can be created, right? And so I, I, I believe in aesthetics. I think beauty is is in, essential for the health of the human spirit. Yeah. And I actually think it's almost impossible to appreciate beauty and to choose violence. Mm. I think beauty is one of the greatest enemies to violence. And then when you look in projects and you see where there's incredible violence in uh, among the poor, we trap them in. Areas where there's no beauty, there's no aesthetic. It's 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 uh, visually criminal. Yeah, in fact, we, we and, use the term brutalist. I mean, the word brutal is in. <laughs> and and don't, don't get me wrong. There there can be some brutalist architecture that where there's there's beauty within the the banality of the thing. But but we use that 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 term. And when I think of of you know, project building, I think of the brutalism. I think. And then I think of a brutal life, right? And and we obviously want the opposite of that. Now, you said something that, that was fascinating. It doesn't have to be gaudy to be beautiful. In fact, gaudy things tend to not be beautiful. They're not, because they're really not um, an extension of a, of a healthy spirit. Yeah. And you know, you you can. It's interesting. You you don't even have to be taught it. You can you can appreciate, you can feel beauty as opposed to um, something that's um, ostentatious. You know when something's over the top. You know when someone's trying to make a statement that's not true to themselves. Yeah. And I think that's where things become gaudy. It's when the statement isn't true to who you are. Mm. You're trying to create a, a, um, an idea of yourself or a personality of who you are, yes. trying to be over the top. Yeah, and, and we see that uh, manifest now and multiplied with uh, with social media, right? It's um, there's nothing wrong with putting your best foot forward, and I think when you use social media well, we, we can do that. But when we're projecting an image of ourselves or our lives that doesn't actually exist, mm-hmm. um, it's not even aspirational. It's uh, it's uh, it's it's faux. It's pretend. Mm. Well, I think we have to be careful. We don't create cities that become soulless. Mm. Yeah. And and it, it's and it's true in art because you can see so many people who would, you would call an artist, but they're just replicating paintings that have been existed a thousand times. Mm-hmm. And you know, and somebody's going to buy that painting because they don't know it's actually not art. <laughs> and, uh, and and I just think about how you know Monet when he, they would he would go into the Louvre with with his class, he would look out the window and paint what he saw outside because he didn't want to reproduce what was on the walls. Oh, wow. And I think we need a culture that refuses to just replicate what's on the walls and looks out the window and sees things in you. Know. And, and it, it does make me sad because this building 
it's been sitting there for so many years and we don't own it. We're just renters. We're trying to buy it, but they're going to tear it down and put condominiums there unless oh, wow. we're able to buy it. Well, let's talk about that. And, so, so the campaign is called Here to Stay. We're, we're giving it our best shot. <laughs> yes, indeed. It, it's, uh, I mean, we're, we're in the middle of Hollywood, so it is an expensive building and, and you're trying to uh, to raise some money. I think if, if folks want to want to learn more about that, it's mosaic.org slash here to stay. Yeah. And, and it was really challenging for me because here I am, you know, I'm almost 61 and I've never done a campaign like this to buy a building. I mean, I, I've been here in LA for 30 years. We haven't bought anything. Mm-hmm. We've moved from nightclub to nightclub, from you know, place to place, from warehouse to warehouse. And I never had any intention to buy anything. And a lot of it is because I feel like Christianity has kind of been known for buying properties and building big buildings. And I didn't want us to be put in that kind of category with you know, people who are trying to extend their ego into some kind of facility. I, I, there was this woman who... who um, <laughs> I totally agree. She, I read this article in The New Yorker recently. She, she, this woman, uh, Jaya, she wrote an article about growing up in Houston, and, and the campus of her church was so large, they called it the Repentagon. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, that resonates with me, yeah. but you do have a beautiful building there, and you, you've, you've uh, gathered a community here uh, in, in this building, and so you're trying to establish your... I mean, you already established, obviously, but trying to to uh, to buy the building in which you've established a community. Yeah, it, it's uh, really a daunting task. I mean, when I went public and said, let's buy this building, it was $20 million, we had zero. Mm. You know, And we, we've done a financial survey, a third of our members make 20,000 a year or below. Mm. So we're not an affluent church. Mm. You know, And by any means, for most of the 30 years, my wife and I have been the biggest givers in the church. Mm. So it's so funny when people try to like go, oh, you know, the pastors just make money in the church and going, I wish. No, <laughs> this church has cost us so much. Mm. We've literally taken lines of credit on our house to keep the church moving forward, mm. keep going. So it's, it, it's been the opposite experience for us. We really believe in this place. And if we relocate, it won't hurt Mosaic. Mosaic knows how to move and start over again. But I think it would really hurt Hollywood. Mm. It's, the, it's the last property in LA that's uh, zoned for a church for a nonprofit. And, uh, and it's already zoned that way, so no one's losing anything. And I don't know if we really need another $200 million skyscraper on that spot. Right. Um, it's one of the singular places in LA where people actually do come together of every color, ethnicity, every language, uh, every belief system. Um, our goal was to be a picture of what humanity should be like. And, and that, to me, is completely inspired by who Jesus is. And I do think Hollywood would lose something if we were not there. Mm. So we're, we're way short. We're trying to negotiate. This has been like the worst experience of my life because mm. <laughs> I do not like raising money. Yeah. You know, It's the least enjoyable thing in the world. And most of the money has been raised, has been given by my friends who don't even live here. Mm. Wow. It, you know, and so it's just been my personal relationships and people who found uh, meaning at Mosaic 20 years ago or 25 years ago or 15 years ago. And it's kind of incredible to me that I'd say probably 80% of the money given has been from people who don't even walk into the building. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I think uh, now's a good time to move on to some questions. We've got quite a few surprise questions here. Um, Frank asks, do minimalism and religion walk hand in hand to some extent, being that we shouldn't rely on stuff for happiness? I mean, I I think minimalism, people often ask, like, this isn't a... uh, uh, a new idea and I, I agree like you can go back to to jesus or buddha or 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 muhammad or the stoics you can go back to uh 
um, Thoreau and Emerson and, and Confucius. What's new is the problem. We're, we, we have a new problem where never before have we had this unadulterated access to excess. And uh, we're constantly bombarded, whether it's the 5,000 advertisements that we see a day now, that, that is a new problem. Mm. Um, whether it is the, the 300,000 items that we're confronted with in our homes, the clutter, um, or now it's the digital clutter that we're facing as well. And so we're bombarded with all types of clutter. And so when we talk about minimalism, we talk about dealing with the excess stuff, the, the external clutter first, but really that's just because the, phys the, the material possessions are a physical manifestation of what's going on inside us. So quite often we, if we have this external clutter, we have this internal clutter, mental clutter, spiritual clutter, emotional clutter, psychological clutter. It's just what's going on inside us manifest outwardly. And so um, if we're talking about religion and minimalism walking hand in hand, I mean, I think... I think, Erwin, you're often talking about the same thing. It's uh, dealing with what's going on inside us, that inner peace that we're trying to find. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so much more complicated in some ways than, you know, we, we, we lay out sometimes because if if minimalism by itself was really a solution to happiness, mm -hmm. everybody in poverty would be dancing in the streets. Right. <laughs> you know, so we know there's something else going on. Mm -hmm. exactly. Absolutely. And and then even the shift, like you, both of you were business guys. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. so you, both of you were in a, uh, the economy was financial. And material, yeah. but the new economy is influence. Yeah, and so you've actually you you haven't become minimal. You've changed your economy. Yeah, because now you have millions of followers. You have more followers than I do. I don't know, <laughs> you know, you know, but like you know, millions. <laughs> and uh, and so your economy is mm. actually now influence. Mm. And so someone else might say, well, no, if you want to be a minimalist, you have to minimize how many people you're actually influencing. Mm. You know, and. <laughs> well, it's, it, well it's, it's interesting though like if we went to let's say we went to a monastery right and we were given a talk on minimalism i mean they would look at us like we were idiots uh where i where, where i would much rather be uh and we did this we went to the largest mall in america mm -hmm. and we we hosted an event there and i would much rather be in the belly of the beast dealing with this problem head on than being an ascetic somewhere tucked away in a cave because an ascetic tucked away in a cave is great for them but but it's not great for everyone else. So it's funny. Minimal. First off, we're the minimalists, Erwin, because the domain was available for seven bucks. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> when we when we when we first started this. In fact, when Josh came to me, he was like, "Oh, you know," because uh, we were writing about some of these revelations we had and, and stories we had and and I, I, ideas. And he was like, "Let's do the minimalists.com. And I'm like, no, man, that really pigeonholes us into this minimalism thing. And there's 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 a better name. And Josh is like, okay, what is it? And I'm like, I don't know. He's like, well, let's just use this for now. But and then if something better comes along, then we'll have it. But I think the concept's important because yeah. it's like an Etch-a-Sketch. Mm. Yeah. And I, I always just talk about atheism is almost like an Etch-a-Sketch. Mm -hmm. Most people, when they say they're atheists, are actually saying everything they believed is no longer valid mm -hmm. to them. Yeah. And now they're trying to make a new sense of what they believe. Yeah. Th th there is a lot of things to minimalism, though, I just want to say that we we actually are maximalists in a lot of way. Because we want to maximize people's uh, happiness. We want to maximize people's potential. We want to maximize people's creations. We want to maximize people's love. We want to maximize communities. And you actually, I think in your core value, you use creativity. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. you used um, uh, contribution. Yes. Yeah. And it, I think if that's right, number three, number five. Yeah, we yeah. want to maximize contribution. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And so, yeah, you're, you're, you're basically saying is um, you need to detach yourself from everything that's keeping you from making your greatest contribution. That's Amen. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, 
Corinne asks, what are your thoughts on the commodification of religion in the United States? I mean, I, I guess it's probably not just the United States, but I, mean, I think we've commodified <laughs> almost everything, right? We've commodified love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a diamond is, is a girl's best friend. Diamonds like, are forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, we, we, we're in a commodified culture in, in many ways. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. We commodify everything we value, mm-hmm. you, you know, and... Um, I, but I also think there's an odd kind of dynamic with intellectual property. Like we, we don't think people should, in a sense, make a living on helping you find a life. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I was just uh, in an LAFC soccer game yesterday, which okay. I love. My wife and I go there all the time. Do you really? Yeah, we, oh. we just brought our six-year-old daughter to her first game. And one of the guys in charge of marketing said, hey, we take your theme, Love Built This and we use it all over the world. But we don't put it in writing because we know it's your theme and we try not to steal it, but we use it verbally everywhere we go. And I, and I thought it's funny because uh, churches will just take your ideas and use them, they have no value for IP. <laughs> and, and, but you write a book and you've put your life into that. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so is it wrong for you to sell your book? No, of course no. not. Because you, it, because you believe that it is a way for you to contribute to the greater good. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I, I've always been a person who has a difficult time with um, basing any kind of economy on my faith. Yeah, uh-huh. it, It's always been difficult for me. So that's why I always ran companies. That's why I always ran businesses. That's why I always became, made sure I was the biggest contribution to the church. Mm. But I can't tell you doing that gave me less time to do what would have helped the church. Mm. And, and, and so it's, it's this painful give and take right. mm. of it that everyone's yeah. always gonna question your motives. Yeah. And that's why, really, you need to question your own motives. Absolutely. And make sure you're the first in line right. to yeah. ask yourself that. 100%. And like uh, years ago, this, this guy who sells a lot of books, and, but he's not a, a, a really a writer. He just, he, he's a brand. Okay. And he came up to me and he said, why do you even write books since you don't seem to have any, any interest in selling them? <laughs> and, uh, and then my agent came to me. Wait, can you say the opposite? Why do you sell books when you don't have any interest in writing? I, I do say that. I'm just trying to be polite. And, uh, and, and then my agent showed me all these books. Well, she wasn't my agent then. She said, all these writers have told me they steal your concepts. Mm. They sell millions. You sell thousands. Mm. <laughs> you, how are you going to explain that? And one of the things I had to um, come to grips with is, do I believe what I have to share with the world has value? Yeah. And frankly, for a long time, I didn't. Mm. I felt like um, what I had to contribute to the world did not have enough value to justify someone buying it. It was my kids who finally said, you're never going to give another book away. Mm. You're going to stop treating yourself as if you don't have value. Because it devalues it. And, and, yeah. and then it devalues the message in a way. Because uh, you know, reading this book, I found immense value in, in your words. So thank you for that. I want to acknowledge you for that. But also, um, I think about when we're, if we're just, and, oh, strangely, we're in a culture now where we do, we, I think we unintentionally devalue what we're creating. Yeah. We're, because we're almost in a throwaway sort of culture. I mean, music is free and <laughs> yeah. and, and, and everything is free. And, and when everything is free, then nothing has I mean, value. Think about the cell phone game, man. Like, you know, everyone expects a free iPhone now when they sign a contract. <laughs> right. And it devalues an iPhone. Like when we were working in telecommunications, <laughs> that, that, you know, that Blackberry that retails for four ninety nine ninety nine. 
Guess how much the company paid for it? Four eighty nine ninety nine. Like we marked it up ten bucks, but we give it away for free. There's a lot of subsidy that goes into it. But you're right. Like we devalue so many things. This conversation makes me think about Josh when we went on our very first tour. And you remember? Or- yeah. Do you yeah. remember Orlando? What? What's that? Was that second or third stop? Maybe fourth stop even. Third, I believe. Yeah. yeah. And no, we were- it was second. It was definitely second. Yeah. So we were there with all of the. Um, Oh, the couch surfers. Yeah, yeah. And so somebody asked the question, and uh, I think it was it was about values. And I started to talk about what you know our values were, and I was like, you know, I hate to, you know, I'm not trying to sell our book, but you know, in our book we talk about. And the guy cut me off. He's like, why don't you want to sell your book? <laughs> and I'm like, because I don't want you to think that I'm here to just sell you a book. I'm not. I'm not here to just make money off of off of what our ideas are and what our stories are. I'm here to help you. He's like, well, then it's okay to make money if you're helping. And not for that to be the second city we went to and to get that revelation, I cannot tell you how much it's helped me through the rest of this journey. Yeah, the only people who really get angry when you get um, compensated for what you create are mm-hmm. people who only consume. Oh, tweet that, Sean. Oh, my gosh. God, that's and great. Yeah. W- w- I, I used to have like 200 messages online at the same time. And my son, when he came back from New York to uh, help us, he said, no more. And he cut it down to 10. And I started getting emails from people angry. And I would at first email them back going, you know, because I felt so badly. And I said, wait a minute, you're angry because you're only getting 10 talks free Mm. rather than 200 talks free. Mm. I said, I'm curious, have you ever sent anything to Mosaic to say thank you? Mm. Well, no. And what I found is that people actually give um, appreciate value. Mm. And so now I go, no one has to buy my books. No. Right. No one has no. to listen to my talks. But I do believe that I've made a huge investment in my life to make the world better. Mm-hmm. And, I, and so I don't know if that's commoditizing it, but um, I'd rather do that than for me to be a plumber. Yeah. I, and what do you do when your greatest contribution is your ideas? Mm. And I do believe whoever tells the best stories creates the culture. Yeah. And so why wouldn't you give your life to telling the best stories mm-hmm. that changes the way people think, changes the way they see reality, and changes the way they live their lives? Yeah. It, you know, you talk about inner peace. See, I actually, like, I mean, I was in a psychiatric chair by the time I was 10, 11, 12 years old. I was in and out of a hospital from psychosomatic illnesses. And um, I mean, I had nightmares up to the age of 10 almost every single night of my life. I still struggle with, um, uh, I have this, uh, uh, I don't know, this condition where I, my nightmares are still with me when I'm awake. And, and so there, I had a few years where I would sleep in hotels with my door jarred open so that, because they were so violent that they almost left me dead a few times. Mm. And I, 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 I've always fought with my inner world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and at a level of complexity, it's hard for me to fully express to people. And uh, only my family has seen what it looks like. Uh, and I've fought to find a way to have inner peace, to find wholeness, to deal with um, the internal turmoil that people struggle with. And um, I, I think that actually has greater value than making a chair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, or so, plumber, yeah. and, and even that is valuable. I'm not even diminishing of that. Of course, and meaningful too. <laughs> yeah. But it's but, funny. I would rather give money to someone though, who is like putting their life on the line mm-hmm. for something that they believe in to truly give as much as they can, rather than someone who's just you know coming to work. 
they're hating it all the way through, but they're doing it just so they can do a service and get paid for it. I mean, to me, it almost feels more genuine to get paid for something that you're, that you love to do. And that is contributing. You yeah. talk a bit in the book about living for the weekends and, and what a shame uh, uh, a life like that is. Mm-hmm. And, and I know because Ryan and I, we, we were both in telecom for about a dozen years and, um, uh, I didn't even live for the weekends because I was working six or seven days a week. And so I was living for some hypothetical future. I didn't even know what, what it was going to be. I was living be. for like the two hours I was up after our stores closed. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. You're uh, giving the best years of your life to someone else. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, and <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> it's absolutely true. I, I find that, um, there, there are things that can't, I think you talk about accounting, like accounting isn't going to light you up, but there is someone, we have an accountant who is passionate about accounting. Absolutely, That's the accountant you want to have though, right? Right. Uh, Just because something doesn't, uh, uh, just uh, just because you're not enthusiastic about something doesn't mean that someone else isn't, Mm -hmm. and that it's more appropriate for them Mm -hmm. in in many ways. I imagine with, with your team at Mosaic, there are people who do things that they're passionate about that you're not, and they're better suited for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I mentioned Jordan Peterson earlier because my son sent me this uh, video and he talks about how um, there's some people who say everyone's creative. And I thought, oh, he's talking about me. <laughs> and, uh, and they're wrong. There are only a few people who are creative. And I text my son back. I said, Jordan's an elitist. And, uh, but it's okay. I understand his worldview. He believes there are only a certain number of people, very small, who actually have the ability to create. That's a historic view. And if you believe that everyone's creative, then you know that... Um, a part of leadership, a part of creating a healthy culture is helping everyone find where they thrive, where they're most creative, mm. where they're most alive. And so there, there is a person who's an accountant. And creative accounting can be a negative thing. <laughs> <laughs> but a great accountant can help you f- understand how to maximize your dollars. Right. Yeah. And they can keep you out of prison. And, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know? And, and I look at it, I go, I... I actually want, I was at this event and I spoke with Jack Welch. He spoke right before me and he talked about how there was A people, B people, C people. And in your company, you need to fire the Cs. Uh, you have to tolerate the Bs and you have to hire the As. Yeah. And so I, I had to speak right after him. And I said, you know, that's an interesting view of humanity. And I said, let me just, you know, um, you know propose a different one, that everyone's an A. And real leaders help every person find their A space. Yeah. Ah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but a C can look like a, an A can look like a C if right. they're in the wrong place. Yeah. And I, and I feel like a huge part of my uh, passion is to help everyone find that space where they find their A. Yeah. And it doesn't mean everyone's going to have the same level of influence or the same level of wealth or the same level of, of uh, fingerprint on, on history. Those are just different barometers or measuring sticks. And, yeah. and I think sometimes we give way too much importance to uh, these sort of ephemeral things. Um, we just had Alex Benayan on the podcast. He wrote a book called The Third Door. And um, we were talking about uh, success or greatness. And, and, and one of the things we talked about is like no one cared how much money Abraham Lincoln had in the bank, you know, in in, in eighteen sixty four. Yeah, they don't write stories about that. No, or, or like how many Instagram followers Harriet Tubman had, like, or didn't have. Like this is the, the these are ephemeral, right? They care about uh, greatness is measured by the impact, mm. right? And, and and the the influence and the change and the service. Not by the the society's measuring stick. What's in your bank account? Yeah, well, here in LA, I just try to remind people that greatness is what you do for others. Fame is what you do for yourself. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Here's Tweet a, that. You have so many gems here, podcast, yeah, Sean. Yeah. Tabitha says, 
Would you please discuss the difference between toxic Christianity and actual religion? Mm. So, um, you know, it, I don't know. It, it seems to me that you, you address this at least tangentially with, with uh, when you talk about dogma in a way. Yeah. I think dogma can be toxic. I think, and we try to say toxic Christianity because we, we, we try to blame institutions rather than people. Mm. <laughs> I think they're toxic people in charge of religions. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. and I just try to be, I think, more honest. Look, either I'm toxic yeah. or I'm healthy. Right. You know, and it I has would, nothing to do with the label you have. Yeah. 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 Right. And this, I was at this um, lecture, I think, at NYU or Columbia, and, and this man came up to me and he said, Hey, your view of God, it works for me. But I've never met anybody who believes in God, <laughs> who who lives what you're talking about. Right. Oh. He goes, everybody I ever met's dogmatic and condemning and mm -hmm. judgmental, and 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 I said, let me explain. Those people would be dogmatic, condemning, and judgmental, whether they believe in God or not. Mm -hmm. They just happen to be people who are dogmatic, judgmental, condemning, who then took on God. Yeah. And 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 it's helped me just to understand that there are dogmatic people who are athe atheists can be incredibly dogmatic, oh, yes. mm -hmm. and and can be incredibly unkind and cynical, and atheists can be incredibly kind and you know thoughtful and and provocative, and it's about the individual. So, I, in one, I don't think about healthy religion. You, you made a statement earlier that you think religion over. I think it was you said it. Maybe that religion overwhelmingly you think is a good thing. Yeah, I, th I think. I mean, is it is it fifty one percent good and forty nine percent bad? I don't know what it is, yeah, but I, I think it's closer to one hundred percent bad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> because if you look historically, mm. um, institutions tended to exist to control people. To manipulate. To yeah. manipulate people, to yeah. conform them. So the, whether it's governments or religions. Yeah, I or, guess I'm speaking modern day, yeah. Um, but yeah. You know, and so religions tended to be more violent in the past. Yes. You know, Christianity was violent. Oh, the Christian you, you Crusades know. are like. They're not the, our best moment. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you know they're, 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 there's a dark period. Well, it's funny because, well, my, my grandma, I was having this argument with her about, you know, Christianity and the Bible, and she's like, well, Ryan, let me ask you something. If the Bible isn't correct how come it's been around this long why do you think god has protected it i'm like the bible's around because we slaughtered christians slaughtered anyone who didn't believe in the bible and burned down libraries of any other you know faiths and that is why the bible is around today it has nothing to do with god well, protecting and it and, <clears throat> and muslims did that mm -hmm, and by yeah. the way atheists did that mm -hmm, yeah and uh, in china yeah, yeah and so when atheism says oh our we're the solution to bringing uh, then the violence, I go, look at China. Because mm -hmm. communism wiped out all the priests, all the monks, you know, mm -hmm. both in Buddhist and Christian faiths. Yeah. And so maybe it's not the religion. Because when people say, well, you know, God uh, is the problem. Mm. Go, God isn't the problem because if God doesn't exist, oh. we're the problem. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> so if we, go, if we could eliminate the belief in God, we would finally eliminate violence. Mm. They're going, that's the most absurd thing I ever heard because yeah. if there is no God, we're still the source of that violence. We created religions to create reasons to manipulate people and conform them. So like, stop blaming God and not believing them mm -hmm. in him at the same time. Mm -hmm. Either don't believe in God and don't blame him mm -hmm. or believe in God and take responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, So I'm suspect of institutions. I mean, I... I was probably an anarchist when I was young. Mm. So I, I, I was suspicious of any institutions. I felt all institutions were corrupt. And, and uh, my, my view of societies were 
just get out of my way and don't tell me what to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and your, your institution, for lack of a better term, reminds me less of an institution at Mosaic and more of a, of a community. Uh, and it seems to me like you would even be suspicious of your own institution in, in, in many ways. Absolutely. And I, I told people from the start of Mosaic, I have no commitment to keeping Mosaic uh, existing. Mm. Like I, and... And, and, Which you know, is non-institutional. I mean, by the, the, the sort of definition of, of an institution is like it, is, it becomes this, this self-fulfilling bureaucracy that is, is self-fertilizing in a way. It needs to continue to grow and grow and grow. Yeah, and I think it can be um, really emotionally unhealthy. Uh, even when people talk about, it, like, you know, we've got to preserve our nation. I mean, one the place I would get myself in trouble years ago is I'd say, look, 250 years is a great run for a nation. <laughs> you know, I feel, and uh, I, I just never felt a commitment to an institution. I, I look at history from an overarching perspective. There's no Roman Empire. There's no Greek Empire. There's no Egyptian Empire. And we just kept moving forward. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we have, we have, humans are incredibly resilient. And, uh, and what I would like to see is, is focus on how we can become more humane. Yeah. And you know, when people sit together from different faiths and different religions, it isn't, you don't have to agree w- with each other to actually be for each other. I, I'd say like, I, I'm, when people say all religions are the same, I said that, that's so demeaning to people. Mm. To say, you know, they go, no, all religions are really saying the same thing. See, I don't believe that. Mm. I, I want you to respect that I actually am thoughtful I, and if I have a different belief, it's okay for us to disagree. Yeah. The question is, can we rediscover our humanity and our disagreement, or is conformity the only solution to peace? Yeah. Yeah, what I, I think about the heretic and Peter Rollins, and he talks about... The heretic is a, is a documentary about uh, a friend of ours, Rob Bell. I'm sure you're probably familiar I, with I've Rob. I've known Rob since he was a child. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, so, yeah. so, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a spot in that documentary where Peter Rollins has his beautiful line about he's like if you really want to know if you're if you're onto the right religion you got to ask yourself is your religion inclusive or exclusive Mm -hmm. and if it's exclusive there's something wrong there and i think the inclusiveness Mm -hmm. that is what really gets us to the root of humanity i mean like you said it's it's okay to disagree the question is like how are you going to handle that disagreement and by the way with rob um If you look at his first book, Velvet Elvis, yeah. he actually yeah. writes in the forward that I'm the reason he wrote that book. No oh, kidding. Wow. Yeah. Because it was the first book of his I ever yeah, read. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And then yeah. when he wrote Love Wins, he writes in there that he wrote that book at that time because of my input in his life. Wow. So beautiful. And because uh, Rob would, you know, um, would come to things I was, I was doing, you know, mm-hmm. and would read my books. And one day we're talking and I said, Rob, when are you going to you know, write a book on some of your thoughts? And he said, uh, books are a thing of the past. Huh. And, wow. uh, and now he's and, 11 or 12 books <laughs> Yeah, and I said really you think books are a thing of the past yeah they're irrelevant they don't have any impact on culture anymore mm. and I said it's funny because I thought you read my books mm. he goes well, well I do it and I said no the tragedy is going to be that you're going to have all these interesting thoughts and you're going to die with them and they're going to die with you oh, wow. and, and maybe your contribution to the world are just to let some of your thoughts germinate in the minds of other people wow. And it'll inspire their thoughts. And well, thanks for encouraging him and, and like making you know helping him see the light. With, and and with it's that. so ironic because like uh, to have a documentary called The Heretic on Rob because um, the, it, it, I I guess the difference for me is I was never seen as orthodox, mm. right? It, you know, and I think the reason it was so tumultuous for Rob is that he was seen he was mainstream, uh-huh. right, and mainline, and really his passion was impacting the thinking of Christians. Yeah, 
And I, that was never like my interest. Mm-hmm. And, I, and so the one advantage I have is I was always seen as a heretic. So I, I never was seen as someone who changed my mind <laughs> <laughs> about having been Orthodox. And, um, and I just think that one truth is more important than Orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. I, I was in a meeting with this pastor on this TV show, and right before the show, he asked me a question. I said, look, heresy um, is just um, the future's orthodoxy. Hmm. And, yeah. I said, and he goes, I hope that's not true. And I, and I said, look, you know, we, we thought the world was flat, and we were sure the Bible taught that. Yeah, <laughs> right. We were, we were probably wrong. We thought. I don't know. I saw a video on YouTube. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, unless you're Kyrie Irving, (laughs) you know. know, We we thought the whole universe revolved around the Earth, and we are sure the Bible taught that. Yeah. And and so, ironically, you can actually still believe in the authority of the Scriptures, and realize you can be completely wrong. Yeah. Because you're you're evoking your your perspective on things. Mm. You know, and we have these little private like unwrappings of the scriptures and and sometimes like oh, I'll walk them through and say look you know where did all the people come from mm-hmm. right that that um, Cain is afraid of and I, I said you we we, we, t- we take the history of the scriptures Adam and Eve Abel and Cain and we take this linear process I said but in I think it's Genesis 5 or 6 it talks about um, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and saw that they were attractive they took them and uh, and I said is it possible that uh, one, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of years of humanity before Abel and Cain, before this story of the fall, mm. and that the sons of God were all the humans who had not fallen, mm. and that they were considered the heroes of old. And, and, and I said, you know, the whole story of the scriptures can be that paradise is actually another world. Hmm. And, uh, and the fall is that we come here because it's the way we tell the story mm. of coming to earth. Mm. And and the reason we just kind of unwrap these things is, look, just do not be limited by the way this story's been told. Yeah. And, and I think what you're saying is, is quite often orthodoxy is, is like an extreme limitation. And, and when, when someone treasures orthodoxy over, over truth, then, then that, I mean, that is by definition dogma. Right. Well, most Christian theology is still trapped in Newtonian worldview. Mm-hmm. And we haven't even jumped over to Einstein or to Hawking's, right, <laughs> you know? Mm. And so a lot of Christianity is still trapped in a view of reality that no one accepts anymore. Mm. <laughs> you know what's crazy? It, it, when I think of Christianity, like at its at its core, where it, where it sits with most Christians I know, it reminds me of, uh, Josh has this story about with his daughter, he was trying to explain to her that Santa Claus isn't real. And she was like, well, yeah, yeah, he is, Josh, I saw him at the mall. And Josh is like, and, and Josh is like, yeah. And Josh is like, well, let me ask you something. If I dressed up as Santa and walked into this room, does that make me Santa Claus? And she's like, no. And Josh is like, okay. So that person you saw in the mall, he's dressed up as Santa Claus. Does that make them Santa Claus? And Ellis is just like, Josh, I don't believe you. And the reason is, and the reason is, is because the story of Santa is much more appealing than the reality of it. Mm-hmm. And and I, I totally agree with you. We are. Uh, when I say we, I mean like a, a lot of Christians, um, and I'm not even identifying myself as a Christian really, but they're stuck on the story rather than the reality. Mm-hmm. And that is where the ex- the exclusion, the divisiveness really, really seeps in. And li- like you said at the beginning of this question, it's not about is Christianity toxic or, or, or some Christianity toxic than others. It's, it's really uh, 
it's really about the the people are the people toxic and if you're really, am i toxic right exactly <laughs> and if you are excluding if you are excluding then you you might be a toxic person yeah yeah if you're driven by bitterness or um or jealousy or or um judgmentalism mm -hmm. uh you're toxic yeah it, it, you know and if you're driven by compassion and love and empathy uh you're going to create a, a whole world yeah and and so you have to really look and see what's motivating you, what's living inside of your inner world. Yeah, that's uh, beautiful. Yeah, man. Uh, Angie has a question, and uh, I think this is probably one that you see with uh, with people who show up at Mosaic. How do you continue to bond spiritually when your spouse walks away from faith, but you still believe? And what I would say is, like, I actually think that different beliefs are often what make a relationship interesting or fun and it even creates a, a necessary tension because if we agree on everything all the time, then why are we even in a relationship mm. together? Yeah, yesterday I, we had some friends over and I said, my wife's favorite statement after I say something is, that's not true. <laughs> 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 and after I said it, she said, that's not true. <laughs> That's so, so good. So I don't know what it's like to live with someone who agrees with me. <laughs> and uh, and, I, and I, I think that's part of the challenge of it is that we think that relationships only work when there's complete agreement. Mm. And, and we misunderstand the power of love. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think values have to line up. I mean, I think in a relationship, the values do have to be very similar. Do they have to be, you know, one for one? No, but it's, it's got to be a, a, a close ratio to one to one. Um, how you get to those values. I mean, Josh and I talked earlier about how we have different beliefs. We have the same values. We get there different ways. And what's kind of nice about our relationship, it makes me more whole of a person because I can look at my beliefs and I can say, oh, you know, that's interesting to look at it through Josh's eyes. And I wonder, or I can simply take his, you know, his perspective and be like, I just, I just don't agree with that perspective. But it makes me, again, more whole as a person to have those those different beliefs. So, you know, I would encourage, uh, who is um, Aunt? Angie. Yeah, Angie. I would encourage Angie, Angie to embrace the different belief systems that you have, but really appreciate the same values that you and your husband do have. Yeah, and if you're the person who believes, if you're if you understand yourself to be a follower of Christ, mm -hmm. and your husband doesn't believe, um, he already knows all the right information. Yeah. So if you just keep preaching at him the same information, you're just going to push him further and further and further away. Mm. If you actually believe in the reality of who Jesus is, then you'll know that love is the only thing that will ever win them anyway. Right. You know, so stop using truth as your weapon and use love as your weapon and I think you're going to make more progress. Yeah. Wow, you. dude, tweet that, Sean. That is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got one more question. It's from uh, our good friend Adam, who is a pastor down in, in Tennessee. And uh, we grew up with him, went to high school with him. And um, he, uh, he and I have really great conversations all the time, even though he and I have, have pretty different beliefs about, about things. Um, he, he, he asked me to ask you, what is a good life and how do we become good people? Yeah, that, that's a big question, how to live a good life and become good people. I, um, and I'm a little nervous about answering it because I never want to give people really specific answers to what I think are very organic questions. Uh, but I think that in the, uh, on a basic level, the way you live a good life is by doing good. And I, I look at my own life, and the more I live my life for others, the more joy I have in my life. Yeah. Even this ethereal thing called happiness, uh, when I pursue it, it's so elusive. I mm -hmm. can never find it. Mm -hmm. And when I'm, I, I've realized that I'm most happy uh, 
when the people in my life are doing well. Yeah. It's the strangest thing when my son Aaron, daughter Mariah, when my wife Kim are doing well, when our other daughter Patty is doing well, I've, I feel an incredible sense of happiness. I, I do think a part of maturity is your happiness is not centered in yourself but in others. And it's so strategically smart because <laughs> if your happiness is completely contingent on how you're doing, it's so fragile. Yeah. But if your happiness is, is connected to how other people are doing, you, you've almost like expanded your potential for happiness. Yeah. And, I, and so, I, you know, and I think being a good person is really just about living your life for others. Yeah. Rather than living your life for yourself. It's about doing yeah. good. It, it, it is. That's it's it's not that complicated, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And uh, there's just such an... <clears throat> Yesterday, we were in a store. I had a friend who had a birthday. And I, I don't want to go into super details, but um, I asked his wife what he needed, and she said clothes. They have mm. like two kids, and they have a third in the way, and they don't have any money to buy clothes. Mm. So I took them to a store that I like, and I said, hey, let's go shopping. And I just buy him all this clothes, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and and because I know he's a public speaker, and you know he's not going to spend any money, and and I just let him pick out stuff he liked, and it was cool. And and we got to the counter, so the people won't go. Um, is it your birthday, Tim? And he goes, uh, well, it was the day before, and he goes, not today. And he goes, well, I'd like, are you best friends? And and he goes, well. Um, I said, yeah, we're good friends, you know. And he goes, well, he's my boss, <laughs> you know. And I said, I said look, I. St- I started this church called Mosaic. He's the pastor in Hollywood, and it's his birthday. And they all go, we want to come. Uh-huh. And I told uh, my wife later, I said, they were watching this act of generosity, and what we believed was irrelevant. Mm. They all, and they all were giving him their information. And I said, probably in that store, they never see anyone do anything generous for someone else. Because it's all about consuming for me. Yeah. yeah. And I started going, I've had the opportunity to create some wealth in my life. And the most enjoyable thing I have to do in my life is to give it away. Yeah. Amen. Like, right? Yeah. It, it is. Like when, when you do things for yourself, the joy is so fleeting. Yeah. You, you, you buy a car, you're really excited for a day. Yeah. You know, and then you're devastated when you get your first dent. But when you buy something for someone else, it, it just remains a part of who you are. Yeah. And so I'd say, you know, when if you want to live a good life, do good. Yeah. And if you want to be a good person, do good. Yeah. It's just not complicated. Yeah. No, I, I, happiness is ephemeral. And uh, it's funny because I used to focus on happiness a lot. And now I focus on living a meaningful life. And happiness is this beautiful byproduct that comes from living a meaningful life. That's right. But it's funny because people will ask like, <clears throat> so Ryan, you know, you've been doing this minimalism thing for the last, you know, nine years, 10 years, something like that. What's your end goal with it? You know, what are in there really? <laughs> there is no end goal, but I, I do have a goal. I do have a goal. See, the thing with minimalism is that it's not about uh, giving up everything. Like a poor person, that doesn't make them a minimalist. Mm-hmm. To me, the idea of minimalism, it is a tool that helps people to get over this compulsion to bring things in that we all, I still have it as one of the minimalists, man. I really want to go get a Tesla and I could very easily afford a Tesla payment, but I am not going to uh, start to stoke that need. Now, if a Tesla made sense, I could, and I could put down $60,000 and have no debt, uh, I would do it. I am not in that position to do something like that. So, so I'm just giving an example of how I still want to buy things. I still have to fight that urge and minimalism helps me to combat that. And here's the thing is if you can fight that urge, and if you can want less, 
that is what enables you to give more. And that is ultimately my goal is it is to help people uh, to, to, to f- stave off that, that, that impulse to buy and to be able to look at that and say, you know what, I know that I have this one impulse that I really want to go get the new iPhone or I want to upgrade my computer or I want to go get that Tesla, but that's not really going to help me live a meaningful life. Mm-hmm. And once people, once they feel like they have enough, once they feel like they don't need to take any more, that's when they start to look outwardly. And that's when they start to give more. So I couldn't agree with you more. Living a good life is is doing good. And I think doing good means, uh, it means contributing as much as you can to other people in your life. Whether whether it's a stranger, whether it's a family member, I mean. You know one of the challenges, I remember talking to this guy who graduated from UCLA and uh, I looked at him and said, hey, what are you gonna do with your life? Super intelligent, super you know talented. He goes, you mean to pay the bills? And I said, no. You you just graduated from one of the most prestigious schools in America. You have been given so much intelligence and so much talent. If you live your life to pay your bills, you're a criminal. Mm. Mm. And you should you're cr- robbing others. Yeah, you mm. should you, you should be asking the question: How can I create a thousand jobs? Yeah. And 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 I, I think a part of the dilemma in in um, this era is that we actually think nobility is measured in um, what we don't do rather than what we do. And so then now we judge people by what they have rather than what they give. Yeah. And I, and I, and I feel like, um, to me, I'm an immigrant from El Salvador. I was given an incredible opportunity to be a part of this country. And um, I, I began as a monastic. Uh, my wife and I slept on the floor because I wouldn't buy a bed. I mean, I had such a, an anti-materialism perspective, and mm. and I thought that was the way of Jesus, and that was the way. I mean, I lived at, at an extreme level mm. for the for ten years of my life. My income was never over twelve thousand a year. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm not talking about an idea. Mm. I I did it. I yeah. did that. Mm-hmm. And one day I came home and I told my wife, I think that I'm supposed to go create wealth. <laughs> and, uh, and she asked me why and she didn't my wife was an orphan was abandoned in government projects left starving found by social workers three weeks later and lived in a foster home from the age of eight to 18. Mm. Uh, she comes from desperate poverty and and you know the idea of me coming home one day and saying i think i'm, I'm supposed to go create wealth was such a foreign concept to her yeah. <laughs> you know you mean you can <laughs> I said, yes, I've been living in rebellion to my family mm. <laughs> and, uh, and to everything they hold dear. And I've been sticking it you know, to all these ideas in my head. Uh-huh. But what I've really come to realize is that it would be incredibly valuable for me to create jobs for hundreds of people mm-hmm. and for me to make an impact in the world by what I can create. And, and, and that was a shift in my life. And it happened very, very fast for us. Because I do think there's some people who are created, just like some people can paint and they can create art, some people can create wealth. Yeah. And if you don't take that stewardship, I think you've stolen something from the world. Yeah. And, and so you don't have to be, give up materialism by giving up being generative. Right. You actually need to be generative with the right value system. Mm-hmm. People who don't give when they're rich didn't give when they were poor. Right. <laughs> and, and when my wife and I had almost nothing, we had a value for generosity. And uh, for 20 years, people lived with us for free in our home mm. consistently. 
So we didn't have a lot we could give financially, but we gave our space, we gave our privacy, we gave our lives. Uh, I brought a woman home who was a double amputee who had a little boy who had been raped. Mm. And she lived with us the whole year that she was pregnant. And I was the first baby I was ever party giving birth to. And we, uh, we lived in a space so small that I had to remove the bathroom door so she could wheel chair in and out. And so every time I used the bathroom or shower, I had to pick up the door and lean it up against the open hole. And, and when people talk about generosity, it's always about something they can do that doesn't affect their life. Right. Mm. And, and generosity is so much more than that. It's mm -hmm. about seeing your life as a space that's supposed to be a gift to other people. Yeah. And, and you know, so I, I appreciate what you're saying, and I think that I, I would just say that the key to me of, of thinking minimally is to, what you guys were saying earlier, is to ask question, how do I maximize the good I can do in the world? Yeah, absolutely. You, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I think it's okay to enjoy life. Of course. <laughs> well, know? I mean, it's funny because Josh and I, we were doing like this, uh, I don't know if it was like Facebook Live or Instagram Live or something, and we were talking about minimalism, and someone had said, uh, they're like, you guys aren't minimalists. You, didn't, you guys didn't give up anything important. And we're like, yeah, you're right. We didn't give up anything important. Why would you give up something important? Right, exactly. <laughs> in fact, we had to give up other things, though, in life so we could bring in what was We that? gave up things we pretended were important yeah. or thought were going to be important, but were ultimately inconsequential or, in fact, toxic in the way... Mm -hmm. um, they, they they prevented us from living more meaningfully, mm -hmm. from contributing, from creating, from living a healthy life, or, or or having meaningful relationships. And and I think quite often we just get confused about what we bring into our lives, how, how we spend the resources we have. And you just talked about some of those resources, whether it's giving money to contribute, or it is giving your time, your space, your privacy aspects of your life your energy the these are these are all resources we have and they're important resources mm -hmm. and we can either be frivolous with them we can we can waste them mm -hmm. or we can do good with them i think ultimately we all agree on this i think if we consumed less and gave more we would have a much better world yeah absolutely yeah yeah Erwin, I want to acknowledge you for creating something meaningful. I want to encourage people to check out The Way of the Warrior. And you mentioned your daughter, uh, Mariah. Uh, this week while I was doing research for this episode, my daughter and I uh, were listening to her new album or, or a project called Heartbreak Magic. So I figured... Have maybe, you seen the video? Uh, I have not seen... Oh, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, well, we'll have to put a link to that on, on YouTube as well. Uh, let's end this, this uh, Maximal episode here with uh, Heartbreak Magic from Raya. We'll put a link to this in the show notes That's as well. Epic. <laughs> Erwin, really appreciate you being here, brother. Thank yeah, you man. so much. Hey, thank you guys so You're much. Awesome, it's been man. fun. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. I'm stuck in